This past week, I and a number of other pastors received an email from a pastor in Melbourne, Australia, explaining that the provincial parliament, and for Melbourne that would be the, the Victorian parliament, the provincial parliament voted to criminalize praying and talking with a person about sexuality and gender from a Christian perspective. The legislation is called the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill. According to this pastor, the bill includes criminal acts and other acts that may lead to civil tribunals. According to this pastor, um, a person can be charged with breaking, if they're charged with breaking these new laws, they may face up to 10 years imprisonment. According to legal experts that this pastor has uh, spoken with, communicated with, these will be among the most extreme laws in the world dealing with this particular issue. What has happened in Melbourne is that contempt for Christ and his people has been publicly and formally authorized and weaponized by a democracy. What was personally and informally permissible by the general populace, the contempt of Christ and his people, is now publicly and formally permissible and perhaps even preferable. Now, this act, it will take a, a year or so to implement and we may hope and pray that the Victorian Parliament would reverse course. Nevertheless, at this moment in time, the public, through their representatives, have spoken. And they hold Christ and the faithful biblical ministry of his people in contempt. So much so that they have criminalized Christian conversation on the matter. In one of the emails that I and other brothers received after the bill's passage, this pastor said, We're not used to the threat of imprisonment hanging over our heads, but the Lord remains wonderfully good. Praise the Lord that this brother and believers in Melbourne are trusting the Lord through this trial. As I wrote back to this brother, I encouraged him to take a look at the psalm that we're set to study together this morning. Psalm 123. It's a psalm that teaches us to lament the world's malice while looking to the Lord for mercy. To lament the world's malice while looking to the Lord for mercy. This psalm reminds us that we have a sovereign God who cares, who is in control and who has compassion on his people in their affliction. This lesson is just as important for us here today to learn as it is for the saints in Melbourne. We too face the low-level contempt and resentment of the world. At the present and in our context, the contempt of Christ and his people is most, mostly personally and informally permissible and preferable, but we need not be frightened for a change in that. Our God is enthroned. He's ruling and he's reigning and his people have his ear. And we, just like the Lord Jesus, can look to him. We can look to our sovereign Lord for mercy. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to open your copies of God's word to Psalm 123. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage on page 517. When you arrive there, when you arrive at Psalm 123, you'll likely notice in a scripture at the top that says a song of ascents. And this reminds us that we're in the midst of something of a mini hymn book in the Psalter itself. The Psalms of Ascent were a group of 15 psalms that were used by pilgrims as they traveled and went up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. These songs, they were written at different times in Israel's history, but they were eventually grouped together as something of a traveling hymn book. I may be dating myself a little bit, but you can think of these psalms as something of an ancient and godly mixtape for a road trip to Jerusalem. 
So far in the Psalms of Ascent, this, uh, the, the pilgrim has lamented his place in the world of lies. He has determined to get on the road and go to Jerusalem to meet with the God of truth. That was what we saw in Psalm 120. In Psalm 121, he, he got on the road, and as he was on the road, he looked up to the hills and he saw the danger and the temptation that he was facing, and he purposed to keep his eyes on the Lord who would keep him safe. And then in Psalm 122, David sang a wonderful song about his joy of looking forward to worshiping with the people of God in Jerusalem. We go from the lovely Psalm of 122 to a Psalm of Lament in Psalm 123. Here in this Psalm, the pilgrim laments the, the malice, the contempt and scorn that he faces while he looks to God and hope for mercy. We go from the, the highs of Psalm 122 to the lows of Psalm 123. And as the road goes up and down on the journey, so does a pilgrim's heart on the journey. We know this in our own life experience, don't we? In our own spiritual pilgrimage, it has uh, the sublime and it has the sorrowful. It has trials and it has triumphs. And so this psalm, it helps us to keep our eyes on the Lord. It helps us in our Christian pilgrimage to walk with faith and hope and love. These songs as a whole, the, these songs of ascent, they teach us to be hearty and holy and heavenly minded Christians in the midst of our sojourn and journey here on earth. Well, as we read Psalm 123, I hope you'll see how this song teaches us to look to the Lord for mercy when we're full of the world's malice. Follow along as I read Psalm 123. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord Yahweh our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord Yahweh. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This psalm, it teaches us to look to the Lord for mercy when we are full of the world's malice. And if you're looking for a single sentence that summarizes Psalm 123, I think that's it. Look to the Lord for mercy when you are full of the world's malice. Looking to the Lord for mercy, it comes out, you see there in the first half of this psalm, and being full of the world's malice, lamenting and languishing under the world's malice, it comes out in the second half. I actually want us to begin our study in the second half of the psalm, where we're looking at lamenting uh, the world's malice. I think that if we can wrap our, our heads around what's going on, what the burden of the psalm is, we'll be able to better lay hold of the counsel and comfort really in the first half of the psalm. So here's our outline, just two simple points. Lamenting the world's malice, number one, and looking to the Lord for mercy, number two. Let's begin at the, at the end of the psalm, and I want to read again verses three and four. Here we're looking at lamenting the world's malice. Set your eyes there on verses three and four. Follow along. Have mercy upon us, O Lord Yahweh. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Of the contempt of the proud. Here are Psalm and the pilgrims who first sang it. They lament the world's malice. And by lament, I mean that they cried out to the Lord for relief from their affliction. That's what a lament is. It's a painful cry to the Lord for relief. A lament is different than your run-of-the-mill complaining. 
Uh, complaining is sinful and ungodly. The scriptures teach us to do everything without complaining or grumbling. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, a lament is different than a complaint. Because a lament is a painful cry to God for relief. And it's suffused. It's, it's filled with hope that God can and will do something about our affliction. That God will show mercy. That's why the psalmist pleads with God to have mercy. Because he believes that God's mercy is the answer to his affliction. God's mercy is the answer to our affliction. And of course, God's mercy is his active care and compassion for our affliction. Uh, Jesus is the one who embodies and demonstrates God's mercy most clearly, isn't he? Think about Jesus' ministry. When he saw the crowds, he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He was filled with compassion. And so he met their need. He filled them physically by feeding them. And he filled them spiritually by teaching them. In mercy, he did something to meet their affliction. Jesus, of course, also uh, met the afflictions of those who were, were ill. He healed so many with diseases. He cared for their afflictions. He showed mercy in that way. And of course, in the most supreme way, he showed his mercy when he forgave sins. He looked at the paralytic man and he said, your sins are forgiven. That, of course, is our greatest need to have our sins forgiven. Jesus shows us God's mercy in action. Now, notice in verse three that the psalmist cries for mercy and he keeps crying. This is a good lesson for us, isn't it? That when we are afflicted, we ought to cry out to the Lord and to keep crying. Twice the petition comes. Have mercy upon us, O Lord Yahweh. Have mercy upon us. This seems to indicate that the affliction he's facing is severe. He needs relief and he needs it right away. He pleads and he keeps pleading. Now you'll remember I said that the message of Psalm 123 is that we should look to the Lord for mercy when we are full of the world's malice. And that word full, it's intentional. You see that twice repeated phrase, we have had more than enough, comes at the end of verse 3 and then the beginning of verse 4 there. And in the original language, uh, underneath that phrase, the idea carries with it, the idea of being um, fully satisfied. You've had your your fill of food even, perhaps, and you can't, can't eat anymore. Perhaps you did that at Thanksgiving or Christmas, you ate, and then you couldn't have another bite. Well, that's the idea there. And... Those who first sang this song, they had more than enough of the world's malice. They couldn't take any more of the world's contempt and scorn. They've had too much. They're overwhelmed. The world really has long held God's people in contempt. It's long heaped scorn upon the people of God. What was the original cause that first gave rise to this lament? Well, we don't really know. Several uh, ideas come to mind. Even several situations in Israel's History could have provided a framework for this psalm. Perhaps there were faithful believers in the northern kingdom of Israel when many in the northern kingdom were giving themselves to the worship of Baal and combining the worship of Baal with the worship of Yahweh. Perhaps they were looking down upon their neighbors who wouldn't join in with the worship of Baal. And so faithful believers were being afflicted and held in contempt. Maybe this is a possible suspect for the proud that are mentioned there at the end of verse 4. Is it not proud to think that you can sin and sin and sin? So disregard the worship of God. Go about it in your own way and think that God does not see or care. And so those who don't join in with you in your idolatry, you look down on them with contempt. They're worthy of being disregarded and degraded, perhaps. You know, another possibility springs to mind. 
So what could be the circumstances for which this psalm was raised? Think of uh, the situation in the southern kingdom of Judah, where so many loved money more than they loved the maker. It's really quite easy to look down on those who have less. You know, the the prophets, uh, Amos and Isaiah, they regularly uh, decried the attitude of the rich toward the poor and others in Judah. Uh, Maybe this is a possible suspect for those who are at ease. It's easy to scorn, to mock and mistreat, to deride those who have less, less power, less resources, less, less control even of their own circumstances. When you have so much, it's easy to sit back and sit in judgment on others. Beware, we are very wealthy as a congregation, as individuals. We should beware that we not sit in judgment on others. You know, another possibility is that the people of God are facing the malice of their captors in Babylon. We we don't really know what first gave rise to this psalm, the malice that we see here. But all of these possibilities would make sense. In fact, the general nature of this lament allows faithful believers from different difficulties to make use of this psalm. Uh, So many people, remember, gathering on the road, they can lament their own circumstance, their own difficulty and contempt they were facing from wherever it was they were coming from as they got on the road and joined other pilgrims. Whatever the case may have been, the malice, the contempt and scorn, it was ruthless. They had had enough. Too much, in fact. Few things cut like contempt. Few things bring sorrow like scorn. Being despised and rejected can hurt. The ancient people of God, they endured malice, they endured contempt and scorn, and so did Jesus, and so will we. As you think about verses 3 and 4, I wonder if your minds run to Jesus, the one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right? The prophet Isaiah told us that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. When we come to the Gospels, that's exactly what we see happening to the Savior. Jesus was constantly held in contempt by the Jewish religious leaders as they sent man after man to test him and try to trap him. When they eventually got their hands on him, we're told in Matthew's gospel that before Caiaphas and the council, they spit in his face. They struck him. They slapped him. They scorned him. They dared him to prophesy, who struck you? Can you not imagine Jesus praying in those moments, I've had enough. Have mercy. And then in Mark's gospel, we're told that the Roman soldiers put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They thrust it on his head. They handed him a reed and they mockingly saluted him and said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Can you not imagine Jesus praying in those moments? Have mercy. I've had enough. And then, of course, we come to his cross. And in Luke's gospel, the people are standing around, watching him hanging there in agony. And they scoff at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. Pilate had a mocking inscription put over him. This is the king of the Jews. And if that were not enough, we're told that one of the criminals crucified next to him railed at him and scorned him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Can you not imagine Jesus praying, have mercy, I've had enough. Through all of that malice, he looked to the Lord, to his Father in heaven. Jesus trusted his Father all the way through the malice. 
This is how Luke's gospel records Jesus' final moments and words. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. All the way to the end, the Lord Jesus kept his eyes on the Father. You know, before the Spirit worked within us, we were those who had malice toward the Messiah. If we had been at the cross, our voices would have called out with the scoffers. Maybe you are still a scoffer today. Maybe you still hold Christ in contempt. Friend, you need to know that there is mercy available to you. There is mercy available to you through Jesus. And the truth is, is that if you do not embrace the Lord Jesus in faith, you hold him in contempt. You reject his offer of his life for you. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. The life of constantly looking to God the Father. You hold in contempt God's commands and you choose to live your own way rather than his way. Whereas Jesus He always did what the Father commanded. You hold in contempt his sacrificial death where he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. If you reject and refuse Jesus, you hold in contempt his resurrection from the grave where he proves to you that his mercy is enough to satisfy God's just wrath against your sin. Oh friend, don't hold him in contempt. Receive him. And receive his mercy that he won for you through his life and death and resurrection. Do not have malice toward the Messiah. Love him and embrace him and serve him. Look to him every day. Every day that God gives you life and breath for your salvation. Christian, you you need to know that Jesus knew that he would face this malice. He, He predicted it all throughout the course of his ministry. But he predicted something else too. He predicted that his disciples would face the malice of the world as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Jesus proclaimed, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Similarly, In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Brothers and sisters, I I do not mean to frighten you. I mean to fortify you. As many Christians have often said, To be forewarned is to be forearmed. But we need to know this truth that Jesus taught. You need to be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake and only for Christ's sake, not for your silliness or not for your sin, but only for Christ's sake. You need to be prepared to face the contempt and scorn and malice of the world for Jesus' sake. Jesus was clear and so were his apostles. After all, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the apostle Paul said this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Consider those words. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When the time comes, not if, but when, you should not be surprised by what you are suffering. That's what Peter tells us. I wonder if even now you're feeling 
full of the world's malice. Perhaps you feel in your soul a bit like what uh, Lot felt, righteous Lot felt, as he lived in Sodom. His soul was tormented while he lived there, the scriptures tell us. You know, on Wednesday night, one brother was telling me that he received contempt and scorn for attending church in the age of the coronavirus. Scorn for your sincerely held belief that obedience to the Lord Jesus in the face of natural phenomena, governmental and cultural sway, it can be painful. It can also be painful to hear the name of our good God derided and held in contempt for his revelation that a man is a man and not a woman, no matter how deeply he feels it. Or a woman is a woman and not a man, no matter how deeply she feels it. Believers face the world's malice for speaking those truths. Sometimes believers are personally ridiculed for believing and declaring that the work of creation is God's making all things from nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. These days, believers in Jesus are labeled as homophobic and bigoted for pointing out that in God's world, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. There's no doubt in my mind that malice would actually multiply if God's people said that such relationships manifested dishonorable passions, that they were contrary to nature, and that those relationships are characterized by shameless acts. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, 26 and 27. Our stance as a church on these issues is firmly based upon the word of the eternal God. But it is out of step with the citizens of this world. Any news article on any of these subjects will have scores of comments scorning people, scorning the people of God, especially for their sincerely held beliefs. We should feel the scorn, contempt, and malice of the world for our beliefs, even if they're indirectly aimed at us. But one question we need to consider is whether or not the world has enough material on us for malice against us. Does the world have enough material on us for malice against us? We should not seek suffering or the malice of the world, but we should consider whether or not we've been clear about Christ, about his commands, and his calling to come under his lordship. Do our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family, do they have enough information to hold us in contempt? Google might, big tech might, but what about those you share a street with or an office space with? or an apartment complex or building with, do they know enough about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to hold you in contempt, to condemn you with scorn? Whether or not they will is another question altogether, but do the lost around us know enough about our faith and what it means to be faithful to the Lord Jesus for us to become full of the world's malice, for us to have had enough and to cry out to the Lord for mercy? As I've reflected on my own heart and Psalm 123, that's the question I keep coming back to for myself. Does the world have enough material on me for malice against me for Jesus' sake? Have I feared God or man in my engagement with my neighbors? Have you? Have you and I been clear on the call to repent and come under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I loved ease more than I've loved my neighbor and spoken the truth in love to my neighbor. We don't need to be unnecessarily offensive, but we mustn't mute the message of the Messiah. Children and young people, this is something you should recognize presently as you are considering whether or not you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As you grow up and you potentially step out into uh, secular education institutions or work environments, you will have to wrestle with what faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. In biology lecture halls, you'll have to discuss creation and evolution. You'll have to discuss what it means to be male or what it means to be female. In family studies courses, you'll have to consider what it means to announce that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Even beyond the classroom, in those conversations will occur in your workplaces, places of employment. And those will be opportunities for you to declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ and to offer his mercy. Discuss these things with your parents now. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have within. And you should know that whatever malice you endure on this earth, it will be worth it. Because there is more mercy in God than there is malice in this world. There is more mercy in God than there is malice in this world. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. And I wonder, if you look at the end of this psalm, does it bother you that it's left seemingly kind of open-ended? Right? It's left with a, a petition for mercy seemingly unanswered. That's so true to life, isn't it? Sometimes our prayers seem to be unanswered. This is one of the reasons I love the Psalms. They're so honest about our life experience in this world. Not everything gets neatly tied up into a bow. So, what do you do when you're left with lamenting the world's malice and crying out to God for mercy? Really, you keep doing what the first part of this psalm teaches you to do. When you are full of the world's malice, you look to the Lord for mercy and you don't stop looking until mercy comes. This lament in itself actually is a continued looking to God for mercy. We'll come back to the end of malice in a bit, but for now, we should return to the beginning of the psalm. Let's take a look at the beginning of the psalm where we are looking to the Lord for mercy and the lessons we learn there. Read, read the first two verses of Psalm 123 again. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord Yahweh our God till he has mercy upon us. If these verses want anything from us, it's that they want us to look to the Lord with eyes of faith. Verse 1 begins with, to you I lift up my eyes. And verse 2 it leads with that word behold, which is a, a poetic way of shouting, look here. And what does he want us to look at? He wants us to look at servants who are constantly looking at their master's hand. Yes, these eyes, these verses, they want us to set our eyes on God and not take them off of him. Now, we, we must remember that we're, we're reading poetry here. And what the psalmist is calling us to do through this language of looking to the Lord is to, to place our faith in him. This is a, a faith-filled look. It's striking, is it not, that in this psalm, we are so often told to look to the Lord or to, to put our eyes on him. Could it be that we are far too ready to look to ourselves and our own strength and our own resources or others instead of to the Lord? Maybe that's why he tells us so often to look to him. This psalm teaches us over and over and over again to look to the Lord and only to the Lord. You see, really, those first two words there, to you, they're emphatic. Our God and our God alone deserves the look of faith. 
And I want to draw out several lessons for this looking to the Lord. Six lessons, in fact. Um, here is the first. Look to the Lord personally and help others look to the Lord too. Take a look, pun intended, at verse 1. And notice the personal nature of this look. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here we have the voice of an an individual Israelite who is personally placing his eyes upon the sovereign God. Individually trusting, individually looking. And now look again there at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You see the corporate community nature of the looking that's taking place there at the end of verse 2? What happened? Why did we move from uh, verse 1, an individual looking to verse 2, a corporate community looking? We've really seen this before in the Psalms of Ascent. We saw it in uh, Psalm 121. We moved from an individual pilgrim to the the group of traveling pilgrims. Well, there are several uh, proposals for why we have this movement. But my, my bottom line is this. This is the nature of corporate worship songs. Right? We, we individually appropriate the truth that we're singing, and then we sing it into the hearts of others as well. We need to lay hold of the truth that's being held out individually, personally, and we need to encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord as we sing. I've made this application before. It's no trouble for me to make it to you again. Um, God is worthy of our thanks, and so you need to sing it. You need to sing and give thanks to God. He's commanded it. But your brothers and sisters, they also need the encouragement of God's word and work. They need your help to give thanks in their heart to God. So you need to sing your thanks to them to help them give thanks to God. And in fact, God has commanded you to sing. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, it calls us to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. Songs They help us to personally look to the Lord and to help others look to the Lord as well. So sing. Here's the second lesson on looking that these verses teach us. Look to the Lord with confidence. I'm getting that lesson from the phrase, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. That that phrase, it reminds us that our God is sovereign over all things in His world. Our God is the author of everything and everyone, and so He has authority over everything and everyone in this world. In fact, our God says of Himself in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand And I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 103 verse 19 says this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Christian, have confidence. Though all around your soul may give way. The Lord God is all your hope and stay. He is ruling. He is reigning. And he's in control. And this is a truth that we need to appropriate, not not just when we're facing the world's malice, but at other times as well. As I sat with our brother and sister Andrew and Anna this past week a couple of times, I read this portion of the psalm to them. Encourage them to place their hope and confidence in the Lord, even as they trusted their son into the hands of doctors and nurses. Brothers and sisters, when we are fearful for our own health, for the health of others, uh, fearful of other circumstances, we need to remember this, that our God is enthroned in the heavens. The Genevan reformer, reflecting on this verse, said that God is here expressly called 
the God who dwelleth in the heavens, not simply to teach his people to estimate the divine power as it deserves, but also that when no hope of aid is left for them on earth, they should then remember that the power of God remains in heaven in unimpaired and infinite perfection. No trouble on earth has changed the Lord's seat in heaven. It hasn't altered his power at all. Christian, look to the Lord and have confidence. He's on his throne in heaven and he is in control. Here's the third lesson on looking that these verses teach us. Look to the Lord for comfort. Look to the Lord for comfort. You see that there, he is faithful. I'm I'm drawing this especially from that phrase in verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord, Yahweh our God. Notice those all capital letters, L-O-R-D in that phrase. Underneath those all capital letters is God's covenant name, Yahweh. This is the name that God disclosed to Moses as he was preparing to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. He wanted to remind them that he's the faithful covenant God. This is the name that God gave so that they would know that he's the God who has mercy. He had mercy on them in delivering them from slavery. This is a God who can deliver us from the malice of the world. He's shown his mercy and his power and his might before. We can take comfort that he can and will do it again. We look to our God for comfort because he's committed himself to be faithful to his people. He has told us that nothing will separate us from his love. Not even tribulation or distress or persecution, as Paul says in Romans 8. When you are full of the world's malice, then look to the Lord for comfort. He has committed himself to you in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And he will be faithful just as he was in the past. He'll be faithful again. Here's the fourth lesson on looking that these verses teach us. Look to the Lord as a servant. Look to the Lord as a servant. Now this challenge to look to the Lord as a servant springs from the examples that the psalm gives us there in verse 2. You see, and these are examples of how, what disposition and manner we ought to look to the Lord. We should look to the Lord, as the psalmist says, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. If we are to look to the Lord God, And remember who he is, right? He's the one who's enthroned, so we have confidence in him. He's the one who has mercy, so we take comfort from him. If we look to the God remembering who he is, we must also remember who we are. We are servants. We are not his master. We cannot tell him what to do. We must patiently wait for his direction. This means that we must look to God with humility. We must be poor in spirit. As we'll think about, Lord willing, tonight from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Not only must we be humble, recognizing our position, but we must be ready to do our master's will. In this example, it's as if the eyes of the servants are constantly trained on their master's hand. They are ready to move and serve him at the slightest movement of his hand. Which also tells us something else about being a servant of the Lord. When he gives direction, we obey his direction without hesitation And without objection, we ought to obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. All of his commands are good for us. We obey as those who are submissive to his will because of the next lesson we learn about looking. Here's the fifth lesson on looking that these verses teach us. Look to the Lord believing in his benevolence. Look to the Lord believing in his benevolence, his his goodness, his, his heart of love and mercy toward us. Our master, he supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. In the ancient world, servants would not only look to their master's hand for direction, but also for provision. The master supplied the servant with a roof, with food and clothing, 
and medical care. A master would and could also deliver his servants out of awkward and difficult circumstances. Um, Should uh, a servant be receiving mistreatment, perhaps from an ungrateful guest, a benevolent master seeing it could call his servant to come and thus relieve him. Again, notice how verse 2 concludes, Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You see, a servant's hand looks to the a servant looks to the master's hand, believing the direction or provision that he is about to receive comes from a heart full of mercy and love. He believes the best about the master, because the master is godly and wise and loving and gracious. At least that's the paradigm that we're to understand when we're thinking about God the Father. When we look to God, we look to Him believing in His benevolence. We look to Him remembering that He has loved us. We look to Him remembering that He did not spare His own Son for His servants, but gave His Son for His servants. And if He did not spare His Son, but if He gave His Son, then He will graciously give us all things that we need. We look to Him believing that He will have mercy upon us. Now, He may have mercy upon us in any number of ways. Uh, Maybe God has mercy upon us by removing the malice, the scorn, and contempt the world. Maybe he judges the wicked in this life and removes them from this world. So removing the malice we face. Maybe God has mercy upon us by giving us grace to endure that malice or that contempt. Maybe God has mercy upon us by granting grace and saving those who were formerly our enemies. Maybe he saves those who had malice toward us and then they join with us in being servants of the heavenly master. Maybe God has mercy upon us by sanctifying us, by giving us hearts of pity for the lost rather than self-pity for our circumstances. Maybe God has mercy upon us by calling us home to glory where we can no longer suffer the malice of this world. However God in his sovereign prerogative chooses to have mercy upon us, we must patiently believe he's benevolent toward us. I appreciate how one brother put it, saying, Our eyes are to be upon God, both to receive His blessings and to do His bidding. We are servants of a merciful Lord. We must believe and keep believing. We must look and keep looking, which leads to the sixth lesson on looking that these verses teach us. Look until mercy comes. Look until mercy comes. And here I simply want to tease out that phrase there at the end of verse 2. Do you see, till he has mercy upon us. Can you hear the faith in that phrase? There is certainty that mercy will come. That's why the psalmist goes on to ask for mercy. Because he is certain it will come. It's striking that when Jesus talks about his return in the Gospels, his counsel to his disciples is so often watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray because the bridegroom is returning. Watch and pray because the master is coming. Watch and pray because mercy will soon come. When our Savior comes, He will have mercy upon those who look to Him with faith and hope and love. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. I want us to think about the end of malice and the end of mercy. Brothers and sisters, we can endure the words world's malice because it will not last forever the world's malice will not last forever 
the end and goal of God's mercy toward us here on this earth is giving us the strength and the ability to endure this malice, to trust Him and make it safely home to heaven. It's one of the ends of God's mercy for us here on this earth. And we must remember that God's final mercy will interrupt the world's malice. And this is why when we are full of the world's malice here on this earth, we should keep looking to the Lord for mercy because we know there's an end coming. Now, I do not want to underestimate the difficulty of the malice that the people of God often endure on this earth. It is exceedingly difficult. There are places around the world, even now, where our brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring the world's malice of their neighbors and their governments, even to the point of death. Our brothers and sisters in those places are no doubt full of the world's malice. They've had enough. Even the saints in heaven say, we have had enough. When, when will you come to judge? Lord, how long until you show mercy and send your final judgment? In those places around the world where our brothers and sisters are full of the world's malice, I'm fully confident they're looking to the Lord for mercy. And one of the encouragements that we have from our God is this. Malice has an end. At the end of Revelation, Jesus promises His people that He is coming to bring His recompense with Him and to repay each one for what He has done. Jesus knows how to rescue the godly from malice and bring retribution upon the wicked. Through His final judgment, Jesus will bring the malice of the wicked to an end. Malice will have an end, but mercy will have no end. One day, all of the malice of the world will be gone. And we will know mercy without it. And that is only because on the cross, Jesus suffered the judgment of God for our malice against him. Brothers and sisters, in in just a few moments, we're going to take the cup and take the bread. And as we do, we need to remember that Jesus, when he gave his body and shed his blood, it was because we had had malice and contempt for him. Contempt for God's commands and sinned against God. The partaking of this meal it reminds us of our, of our own sin and malice. And it reminds us that Jesus in his kindness brought it to an end and has shown us mercy. We ought to give thanks in our heart. And this partaking is preparation for that day when we will know no more of the world's malice. So remember, when you are full of the world's malice, keep looking to the Lord in faith until mercy comes. When malice ends... Then we will know mercy without end. So let's set our eyes on God until that day.